to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Okay, let's uh, let's begin. I want to take maximum advantage of our of our guest today, uh, and give her absolutely every minute that uh, that she can spare us. Uh, my great pleasure. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Amy Walter, who is really one of the genuinely um, respected prognosticators in the in the. Uh, Political field, as opposed to the non-respected. <laughs> I, would say, I would say, let me let me put it this way: there are the dartboard trolls, <laughs> uh, and then there are people who are sort of recognized as uh, having, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily uh, a, a sort of intuitive sense, but a prescience about about uh, about politics, about what is coming, about the outcome of elections, and so forth. Uh, Amy has really created a reputation for herself as being one of those people, one of those people who uh, is really listened to carefully. She is now at uh, back at, uh, at Cook Political Report. She was at ABC News and, and running their political uh, operations for quite a while and has a long and very distinguished history in the area of covering politics. Our topic today, as I'm sure you know, is... Uh, What's about to happen? And I don't know that she can tell us anymore. I was looking at Cook Political Report just this morning, and I would say it was what I would call equivocal about. Uh, Always. Yes. <laughs> it's usually less um, than that. But, I mean, this is a very important midterm election. I think we will all agree. And I would uh, be, I'm very much looking forward to hearing from you. And I want to especially welcome uh, yeah. a group of IOP fellows to joining, who are joining us this morning. That's, uh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Amy, welcome. We're very thank glad you. to have you. And the floor is yours. Well, thank you. And thanks for the invitation. I never pass up a chance to come up here and speak to you folks, hear what you are doing. Um, and I had the, the opportunity to, to do the IOP program at University of Chicago. And not only did I uh, love being outside of Washington for a little while, get some perspective, <laughs> but engaging with the students was so refreshing f for me and uh, humbling as well. They are one million times smarter uh, and put together than I could ever imagine I was at 18 and 19, um, but also to engage with the academic community and the work that everybody here is doing on these issues, because I think there is a natural, what we do and what academia does is not all that different. We just get to the same answer sometimes in different ways, and we can learn from each other. Um, yeah, so these midterms, right, we're about a month away, and, um, you know, every election sort of has its own zeitgeist, right? You kind of go into the election with a sense of what it's going to be, and then as it evolves, uh, over the course, now it's turning into like a four-year process, it feels like. I mean, this presidential election, as we know, is going to start the day after the midterms are over. But over the course of the year, there are challenges to that conventional or that zeitgeist. And then it sort of balances itself out. And I, I say that by, at the very beginning of the year, we knew two things to be true. One, that this map that Democrats were up against, the midterm election map, right? The number of seats that, that, that are up uh, in the Senate. I'm going to just talk about the Senate right now, and then we can talk about the other races in a minute. But that it was daunting, to say the least. These are, this is a, this is a Senate class from 2008. These folks were elected, most of them in very red states, but in a great year. It was an awesome time to be a Democrat in 2008, like bunnies and puppies and rainbows and everything was gonna be great and things were gonna always be like this until now when they're not. And um, to have to defend seven st seats, states that Mitt Romney carried, and Mitt Romney, by the way, lost the election. So the fact that these are states that he carried six of them by double digits, that was going to always, that was always sort of the tough reality facing Democrats. 
The other reality we know is just how tough it is for a second term, midterm party, the president's party, to do anything but lose and lose really badly. Um, as Charlie Cook puts it, you know, the, the reality in a midterm, especially a second midterm, is either it's for the president's party, it's either bad, really bad, or really, really, really bad. So we just had to determine which level of bad it was going to be, right? So the thing that affects the how bad it's going to be, what's going to be the mood? How are voters feeling? Mostly, how are they feeling about the president? Because views of the president, I think, drive voter uh, behavior more than anything else. We know that voters are becoming even more polarized in terms of how uh, their behavior. Six percent of voters last election split their tickets. So who you voted for for president, who you like, uh, at that level drives your vote all the way down. We know that in 2012, 90 percent of those who voted uh, for the Democratic, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 90 percent of those who voted for the Democrat for Senate approved of the job the president was doing. If you disapproved of the job the president was doing, 84 percent of those who disapproved of the job he was doing voted for a Republican. That is somewhat of a change from back in the olden days. If you look at the 70s and 80s, it was more like 30% of voters who disliked the president still voted for a member of his party for the Senate. And even fewer people, I can't, I have to remember, uh, commit this number to memory of the percentage of people who liked the president but then voted against his party in the Senate election was also much higher. So um, we are seeing um, the sort of the disintegration of the all politics is local meme, right? It, it really is, all politics really is national now. And it's very hard to localize, even local elections. I don't know if, if you all witnessed this in your home cities or towns, but um, in my county election, right, county board, I got mail from people running that addressed issues of gay marriage, Obamacare, and um, abortion, which I think have absolutely nothing to do with being a county board member, right? Just schools, roads, those sorts of things, that's what you do when you're on the county board. Um, but it was their way of sending a message of, well, you're, I'm not, how could I be that bad of a Republican? I'm pro-choice. How could I be that liberal of a Democrat? I have a gun, right? So vote for me. Um, we found that in the state legislative races in the South, um, more than 90% of state legislators mentioned Obamacare in their ads, okay? And these are Republican primary voters, primaries all anti-Obamacare. So we have now just nationalized from <laughs> president all the way down to dog catcher practically. Um, so that makes it uh, very tough for what Democrats are trying to do in this election, which is to localize it. Republicans, of course, trying to nationalize it. And as the mood sours for for the president, I mean, his approval ratings continue to drop. The perception of his handling on everything from the economy to immigration to foreign policy is now somewhere in the 30s or low 40s. Um, it's going to be very hard for Democrats to fight up against that. Right? So if you said you just had one thing, which was a red state, okay, that's bad. A mood that's not, you know, a six-year midterm, okay, that's, there we go into the very bad. And now you put on top of it a president who's really, really struggling. And the headlines, not particularly what Democrats were hoping a month before the election, the fact that we're talking about Syria and now a secret service that can't seem to even for God's sakes, keep someone from jumping a fence and getting into the middle of the White House, right? It looks sort of like everything's kind of unraveling. That's uh, not the kind of messaging that the, that the Democratic Party was hoping. So that turns it into sort of very, very bad. Now, the polling has been really interesting this year because there are a lot of folks who've been writing, well, I don't understand. If things are really that bad for Democrats, then how come we haven't seen it in the polling? How come we don't have 15 Democratic seats already lost or whatever? I think that um, what you are seeing is, one, uh, the fact that the, the Republican Party brand is so damaged that voters, unlike 2010 when voters said, I don't like the incumbent party, 
I really don't like what Obama did. I really don't like what the Congress did. I'm just going to go vote for these Republicans. They can't be any worse. And then four years later, they said, actually, they can't be. <laughs> they've, done, they've done a really good job of being a lot worse than I ever imagined them to be, right? And you have the intra-party fighting there, too. I mean, in many of these cases, you still have a party in these states where you had very divisive primaries between, you know, sort of Tea Party and establishment, and those two sides haven't necessarily um, done their kumbaya, let's get together and, and work together moment. Um, so there is, uh, there isn't that, okay, this big, huge wave moment that uh, we see washing over the, the country, uh, in part because of how badly the Republican brand has been damaged. But uh, I, I look at a lot of these states and see very, very close races, not just in the red states, but also in states that um, are blue or purple. Colorado, very close race. Iowa, very close race. New Hampshire, even Michigan, which really shouldn't even be in the mix, is uh, very competitive. So uh, it all sets up for a pretty good night for Republicans, as long as they, one, don't screw up, which they've done brilliantly in the <coughs> last two elections. Now, they're only one uh, legitimate rape away <laughs> from blowing a couple of races, right? Um, and when you talk to Republicans, you sort of get the sense that, you know, Republican strategists and, uh, and allies, um, they feel like the team that always collapses in October, right? You keep cheering for your team, and they have a great summer, and they get to this time of the year, and we <coughs> made it to the playoffs, and then they just somehow implode. So I think there, there's that concern on the part of Republicans. The other concern on the part of Republicans, and it's a fair one, is that they just don't have the ground game that Democrats do, that all the efforts put into technology, as well as infrastructure by Democrats since 2004 has just not been replicated on the Republican side. And that if these races do come down to one or two points, that it's Democrats who are going to have the advantage, especially in places like Iowa where they have a very serious um, advantage in terms of infrastructure, or Colorado where the voting laws were changed this year by Democratic-controlled legislature um, to the benefit of Democrats. Right? Um, my <coughs> final thought on this before we open it up to, to questions and accusations and <laughs> as such is it's just that this is an important midterm election and it, it's going to be interesting and I'm I'm always like a kid at Christmas when it comes to election it's my favorite night of the year it is more exciting to me then um, than Christmas because I can finally un open all those packages I've been waiting. <laughs> I've been staring under the tree at like, Iowa Senate, I just want to open you. Please let me know. Um, but I actually can't wait to get, and I'm hoping that we get all of these, some good uh, election night data from the, uh, from the exit polls. Um, because I, I do want to have a better understanding of who the people were and why they came out and why they didn't. Um, but I, I also think we're going to know two other things. The first is, look, as I said about the map, Republicans can win the majority just by winning six of those seven red states. And that would be fine. But they shouldn't take much joy in that. All they did was pick up seats they should have had. If in this environment a Republican candidate who is decent they have decent candidates in Colorado and Iowa and New Hampshire and can't win in a year as good as this for Republicans. What does it say for Republicans going into 2016? Those are states that they have to win to win the Electoral College, right? So winning in 2014, not necessarily a precursor to winning in 2016. And quite frankly, if I'm Republicans, I'm much, I, should, I would be much more worried about how do we win in Colorado or Virginia or Iowa than how do we win in Arkansas, right? Um, and uh, and that sort of goes to the next piece, which is in 2016, it's not just the electoral map that Republicans have to be concerned about. They have to be concerned about their class that's up in 2016. Remember, this is the class of 2010, so these are all the Tea Party guys. 
and gals uh, who are up in 2016 in some pretty blue states like Pennsylvania and New Hampshire and um, Ohio. And those are going to be very tough seats for Republicans to hold. So if they win six or seven seats, 51, 52, it's fine. Just as likely that they lose the majority two years later. So the emphasis <coughs> on election night for Republicans, I mean, they're almost in a no-win situation, right? Which is they can win majority, <laughs> but if they, as I said, if they only win six seats, everyone's going to say, well, that was pretty anticlimactic. You guys should have done much better than this. Um, and the pressure is going to be on that minute for Republicans to show that they can do something other than shut the government down. Right? They have to prove that they are a governing body that has ideas and can actually implement some of them, that they're not all about the intra-party fighting, but they can do some compromise. And, um, and that's the, the final issue, which is this issue of compromise. You know, you guys hear it too. You talk to any voter out there in America, and the first thing they'll tell you is, why can't they just get along? Why can't we just compromise? Why can't they just sit down with each other? And the problem is, in every one of these elections, since 2006, the party that has gained the majority has gained it on the backs of moderates, meaning the only way you win the majority is killing the moderates of the other party. So 2006, Democrats took control of Congress by pegging every Republican as a Bush acolyte, right? Whether they voted with the president 99% of the time or 65% of the time, they were part of the big, awful Bush agenda. And now you see it with Obama, too. That's how you wiped out moderates in, uh, in Congress on the Democratic side. So we're going to come back. If, if, again, Republicans win, they're going to do it by knocking off the only Democrats who are willing to compromise with them. Right? If you get rid of Mark Begich in Alaska and Mary Landrieu in Louisiana and Mark Pryor in Arkansas, well, there aren't many people left for you to start talking to because the rest of them are pretty liberal Democrats who have no interest and in get no benefit from compromise. And um, that's sort of the more depressing piece, which is, you know, we say more and more we want people to compromise. We want to have um, members of Congress who sort of reflect um, the whole rather than just this very <coughs> small uh, portion of their party. But that's getting harder and harder to do when the ones who do try to compromise end up losing. So. Is that a good place to Yeah, let me, to let me ask a couple of questions, right. and then we'll open it up. Um, I'd like you to look at two scenarios. One, the Republicans do win the Senate, mm -hmm. and realistically, are they going to be able to be um, restrained, mm -hmm. uh, given mm -hmm. the fact that they have been dying to have control, yes. uh, to promote, you know, promote an image of, of, of compromise when what they really want to do is hold hearings about Benghazi right. and, and go and after and Obama in every yeah. respect they possibly can and make it, a, a, you know, the two most miserable years yet. Yep. Or if they don't win control of the Senate, where do they go now? What do they do? Where is their, where, what is their attitude then? Is it to be, is obstruct, again, I mean, are, do they have any path except obstruction? Good question. Um, <laughs> so if they don't win, I think that is in some ways, well, so it de depends if you want to be a glass half empty, glass half full person. If you do the glass half empty, you say, oh my God, we are a party that is completely out of control and um, it falls into chaos and in chaos comes, right, the most extreme elements um, and the party continues to spiral into whatever, civil war, and becomes obsolete. Or if you do the silver, glass half full, silver lining, glass half full, you say, you know, much like anything else, to make change, you need to hit rock bottom and recognize how bad things are before you can go make them better, right? And what better time to do that than before a presidential election? Do Republicans want to lose yet another presidential election? Um, or will they see the fact that they lost this election as an opportunity to clean up their problems, right? Start getting right with women voters, with minorities, with younger voters, have an agenda of some sort that talks to actual real people <coughs> about real issues that they care about. 
have an economic agenda that uh, does not look like it was just Xeroxed from Ronald Reagan. You know, try to be a little more thoughtful there. Um, and if, again, if you're really Machiavellian about this, if you're a Republican governor thinking about running for president, you're like, this is perfect. Yet one more reason why I'm much better positioned for this election than these yahoos here in Congress. If they do win, I mean, you know, look, there is that branch of the party. and We had a breakfast a few weeks ago with Bob Corker, the senator from Tennessee, who said, oh, no, if we win, absolutely, we, will, we understand this. We understand that we're going to have to show our, we're competent and we can do things, and we're committed to that. And um, okay. But the House doesn't have to do that. Right? I mean, the House is, in many ways, their biggest impediment. There's no, no uh, reason for them to have to be conciliatory. Um, and, you know, where I can see on the Senate side, yes, you have Ted Cruz and the others who will still keep pushing um, on a more conservative agenda. But the Republicans who are up this year in blue states at least have some respect from that Tea Party wing, right? Again, this is Kelly Ayotte up in New Hampshire. This is Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. It's Marco Rubio in Florida, all right? Rob Portman from Ohio. Those are the folks up in 2016. They could have some influence to say, hey, you guys, remember me? I'm up 2016. Stop the cuckoo-ness or you're going <laughs> to lose the majority. But on the House side, in all likelihood, they're going to pick up anywhere from 5 to 10, 12 seats. At a time when Congress's approval rating is about the same as a serial killer, right? I mean, that's where they are. So they don't have any incentive to do anything different. And, and that's the, it's really much more of the Boehner challenge than it is the McConnell challenge. So where does this leave the Republican Party? Well, it leaves it, as I said, it's a great opportunity if you're a governor to say, I'm going to be the leader of this party in the way that Bill Clinton, after the debacle in 88, and after every serious candidate in 91 said, I'm not going to run. And there were actual discussions in Washington about the fact that Democrats might not get enough of the vote in the 92 election to even be a major party. Um, that someone's going to have to come in and bring these two sides together. Of the party, and do you see who that is going to be? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If I did, then I would be in Las Vegas right okay, now. Okay. Well, let me let me ask you one more quick yes. question, then we'll open it up. If you were figuring out the Democratic path to keeping the Senate, yes, what would that be? Well, it's what they're doing right now, and and I, I, you have to give um, the Democrats a, a lot of credit here. They knew from the very beginning what they were up against. They were not fools about this. Um, they said the only way we're going to win is we have to localize these races. We have to put basically a barrier up against every one of these states and hope that the waves that hit it won't, you know, crest over the top. And so they're spending a great deal of money on registering uh, new voters, especially the ones that they know are the kinds of people that vote for them but don't necessarily turn out in midterm elections, minorities, younger people, single women, right, putting a just laser-like focus on getting those folks out, getting uh, getting them to turn out. And, you know, they can point to, you know, look, the polls back in 2012 said this was going to be a really tight race. We knew all along it wasn't going to be that close because we were really confident in our ability to find and turn out our folks. Um, so it would be that. The second is they've done a better job on fundraising. You know, for all the talk about the Koch brothers and outside groups and dark money. Um, Democrats are actually outspending Republicans right now um, in a lot of these races. You know, those groups, the Koch brother groups spent a lot of money early. I think there was maybe some belief that they could kill these senators, these Democrats up early, right? Put them underwater and never let them get up. And that was the Democratic call in 2012 which was, let's go after Mitt Romney really early, define him, never let him get above water. Um, it, didn't, it hasn't worked. It hasn't taken out one incumbent, you know, where you say, wow, that race is now over um, because of what they did. And, you know, the other thing that folks 
unless you've worked on a campaign, um, forget is um, outside groups are good at two things. One, destroying an opponent, um, but they're not very good at boosting their friends. Um, and two, they can spend a lot of money, but it doesn't go as far as a candidate. Right? So a, a candidate, because of FEC rules, gets the lowest unit rate when they go buy an ad. So it's like buying wholesale. And an outside group has to buy retail. And so the difference can be, we were looking at this the other day where, I don't remember what market it was, but an ad on Dancing with the Stars, whatever it was. Um, the candidate bought 30 second ad for $300. Two minutes later when the Super PAC ad went up, that was $1,000, right? So your money doesn't go as far. You can, we talk so much about how much money the other side is spending. And this, this happened in 2012 too. The Romney campaign <coughs> did not spend as efficiently as the Obama campaign in raise state after state after state. So the last minute deluge of third party ads, we're gonna talk about, oh my gosh, they put $5 million in, but that may not get you as much as you thought. So those two things, so the, the field and the, and the money, and then just finally, you know, the, the ability for a Republican candidate to, to screw up. And if you were looking at the landscape as it is right now and imagining the states that would have to go for the Democratic candidate in order to keep the Senate, um, you, you need to win two of those seven in order to keep So you it? need to win, if, let's look at it, um, this is the way I do it. So you, there are three open seats that are Democrats that both sides concede are just, they're gone, that Republicans will win. So take Montana and South Dakota and West Virginia and put that in the R column. So ding, ding, ding. Now they need to get three. So they need to find three out of Louisiana, Arkansas, North Carolina, Colorado, Iowa. Did I say Arkansas Kansas. already? Michigan, <coughs> New Hampshire. And you're right. Then they have to hold, so they need to win three, find three of those seven, and hold Kansas, Georgia, and Kentucky. But again, all three of those that I just, the Kansas, we can do that story because that's fascinating. Kansas, Georgia, Kentucky, of course, all red states. There's not a blue state to pick off this year. Um, so if you say, gosh, winning three out of seven, including you know, in that mix is Louisiana, which is really tough, and the polls continuing to show that uh, Landrieu is is struggling there. It will um, almost assuredly be a runoff. Uh, Louisiana has this quirky little law that actually election day is primary day, so uh, that race won't end until December sixth, which makes a lot of Washington reporters happy because. <laughs> If you have to drag out an election, at least you get to drag it out in New Orleans. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's not like going to Tallahassee during 2000. Everyone's like, oh, God, I don't ever want to see Tallahassee ever again. It's not bad. Um, so if you had to sort of put it in order next, and you say, oh, and I forgot to, Alaska. I forgot to. So you say, it's more likely that Arkansas, Louisiana, those are going to be, I, I would be, surprised if Democrats held those. They could, but those are going to be very tough. So now they're at five. Now you got to just pick one more. This is, I feel like this is the game that I played in 2012. If you've ever seen, and if you are t total junkies, this website called 270 to win, because I'm not very good spatially, and I'm also not very good with math. So this helps me in both of those, where the map goes up, and you just click the states, and it adds it up for you. So you do your, okay, what's the path for Romney? What's the path for Obama? And the more that you would start clicking, the, you know, every day I would do it and go like, I just don't know how Romney can do this, right? And that feels like what we're doing in this, if we had a 270 for this, you just click on it, you go, okay, fine. <coughs> Democrats, you held on to Alaska, but you lost Iowa. <coughs> you lost the Senate, right? Oh, you held on to North Carolina, but you lost Iowa and Colorado. <coughs> the other thing to remember, too, is that elections never break 50-50. They always, there's always just a slight, even if it's just a slight tilt, 
you start to see it at the end where they start to break for one party or the other. And that's why in big wave elections, what we thought when we were like, oh, it's going to be a big night for Republicans in 2010. They're going to they're going to easily win like 40 seats. And then it was like or 63. Right. I mean, when that wave hit, it just so um, I just find it it will be very the rare instance where one very, very vulnerable incumbent holds on and one doesn't if there wasn't an, an extenuating circumstance. You know what I mean? Like in 94, I looked at, I, I think of Chuck Robb winning in Virginia. But had Chuck not Robb not run against Ollie North and there was a third party candidate, he probably wouldn't have, mm. probably wouldn't have won. Let me, uh, let me invite students first. Uh, if they have questions, yes. Hi, I'm Hi. Natalie Brand. I'm a mid-career uh, MPA, and I've been a local news reporter for oh. the past eight years. So in, my question in where? Um, California, Oregon, and Arizona. Most okay. recently, Phoenix. Okay. <laughs> yeah, crazy state. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my question mm -hmm. to you: In what ways is the mainstream news media falling short in covering politics right now and election cycles? And what do you say to the many people who believe that it's fueling partisan divide yeah I, I think that's a very good question and um, you know part of it too is how much of it is the local news media um, piece of this and I, I think part of the reason that we are as polarized and uh, as we are um, is that there is not an active and robust local media anymore mm -hmm. and that's n newspaper as well as TV news. And so all news now is filtered through a national filter. <coughs> you know, I say to young folks who, who <coughs> get into journalism and they say, oh, my parents tell me I shouldn't do it. It's dying. You know, go work in computers or go do anything <laughs> else other than journalism. Are you kidding me? That's the st stupidest idea I've ever heard. You know, if you want to come to Washington or New York, there are plenty of jobs. If you are here, you're not going to have a difficult time at all finding a job in D.C. or New York in journalism. The problem is you can't find one in Sacramento or, you know, in Phoenix. Um, and uh, the best story I heard about this was a friend of mine who was at the New York Times. He said during government shutdown, he was sitting in the rotunda, and, you know, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a reporter. Because then they were all descending. Any member that left, right, what do you think? What's going to happen? When is this shutdown going to end? And then he said, and a couple days later, I was in Sacramento where they were having serious, very big debates about the budget and about major issues affecting a state that's kind of important, kind of large. No one. And he said that the front page of the, the Sacramento Bee the next day, its story on uh, what it, whatever it was that had happened in the legislature was a wire service story, right? Like, what? There is no one there covering this. So um, I, I do think that, that the cutbacks on that level have taken its toll, and that is a big reason why we have the, the polarization. As for how to change it, it just sort of feels like that ship has left and set sail, right? That networks aren't going to go back to the days of thinking that coverage was, uh, of enjoying covering politics, unless there's something that they find sexy about it. But I still think, you know, <coughs> car chases and Ebola and animals stuck in trees are, are st and weather are still going to drive that, right? Um, I don't know that there will be many stories at all about it. And part of it, too, Washington has itself to blame, too. Um, when you say, what does it matter if Republicans get control of the Senate? I mean, to this whole debate we had right here, if I had to pitch a story right now about why we should cover the midterms, well, what is it going to matter if Republicans take control? Uh, well, because it'll be Republicans <laughs> instead of Democrats. Well, is anything going to happen? No. Is anything going to change? No. Are they going to do anything? No. Okay, wh why would I put that on air? I mean, it's, it's a hard story to pitch. So you can pitch the individual stories, like, oh, there's this quirky story in Kansas of this. But the overall, and Washington has itself to blame, 
right? Because if they could say, listen, if Republicans take over, we're going to do these four things, and then, then, oh, great, then you, me, we have to hold them to those four things. You said you're going to do this, this, and this. Okay, great. We're going to spend the first hundred days covering this. But it's, it's not. It's just simply about winning and then being done with it. Um, and there's not really even a, if, if you, your news director said, well, what's the theme of this election? You'd say, well, it's, very, it's different depending on who you are and where you live. So if you live in Colorado and you turn on the television, you would think this election is about contraception. If you lived in Arkansas, you would think it was about Obamacare. You know, that's the, so same country, very different election. And, um, you know, then you have Scott Brown up there talking about ISIS. Um, so uh, making the pitch is tough in part because of the fact that Congress itself has proven that it has nothing to say. Questions? Yes. I'm like in my head trying to triage these seven states See, that you listed. Yes, and how are you going to do that? And I'm wondering, for, uh, in it sounds like you said Louisiana and Arkansas are kind of are they're, out. They're just tough, yeah. Um, 100%, you, but. Are anyway. there, of the other four, are there any races that are like a dud candidate or a third party candidate? Right. So if you look at something like, um, North Carolina, where, I mean, you know, this is a very competitive state, but still the president lost it in a year where he did really well. Kay Hagan is doing a, a very good job. And part of it, I think, is because of her opponent. Um, you know, if you're going to run against Washington, how terrible Washington is, it's best not to have a candidate who is basically doing the same thing at the local level, right? He's the Speaker of the State House, her opponent, Tom Tillis. And the North Carolina legislature has been as polarized and as partisan and as knee-jerk as Congress has been. So it, he made for an easy target. He's not a bad candidate in the sense that he didn't have to go on TV and talk about not being a witch or right anything like that. But he's bad in that he's not the right profile for a candidate. And there is a third-party candidate in that race, too, who is um, is a pizza delivery man. Seriously, um, he's not running a campaign, but his name's on the ballot. And for people who, I mean, this is a race to the bottom, right? It's just negative ad after negative ad. For people who are like, well, I don't really like that Obama, or really not a Democrat, I don't like that Kay Hagan, why not just throw your vote to the pizza guy, right? Um, that could be enough to hold on to, to North Carolina. Alaska's just weird. I mean, nobody can poll in Alaska, nobody can figure out what they're doing in Alaska. Um, I think in 2008, we, we literally, we did have to wait uh, until sled dogs brought down ballots um, <laughs> to be counted. So, uh, you know, that's one of those that, yes, there's polling there. I talk to people who've done polling there. But there's always this little bit of you that says, I don't know that I trust what you're telling me. Um, Maybe they just should disguise themselves as bears and like go out and interview people. I, I don't know. I don't know how you solve the polling in Alaska, bro. Tell um, First, uh, I'm so enjoying you on John King's Inside Politics. Oh, thank I you. Believe now is the smartest conversation about politics. Did John um, pay you to do no, that? <laughs> <laughs> no, were you were you one of John's students? No, Alice can tell you I'm generally not that okay. uh, complimentary. So okay. Okay. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. Um, two questions about turnout. Yeah. Uh, one, I'm very interested in yeah. the, the power of unmarried women that people are looking at yeah, the yeah. block here, particularly in Massachusetts. We've had some. Uh, I say faux controversies around women, uh, but be that as it may, yeah. it's come up. And so everybody's pitching hard, both Coakley and uh, Charlie Baker are pitching hard to the women. And so it's, there's sort of been a focus on this on this cohort of unmarried women right. and whether, and it's tough for them to get to the polls, uh, what do you see might motivate them and are they the power block that people are talking about? Mm -hmm. And second, in Louisiana, which mm -hmm. is one of the states you said is gone, we know if African Americans went out, there's no question that Landon would win. Why is it that her brother's good reputation does not sort of support her in any way? Because Mitch Landrew is very beloved yeah. across uh, African American communities. Why is that not working? And can it work at the last minute uh, if he would try to employ them to help her? Um, very good. Can I take your second one first? Sure. Which is, 
New Orleans is very important. It's a very important constituency, but it is not the whole of Louisiana, right? It is well, a, a, a small part, and honestly, it's gotten smaller since yeah. Katrina and um, out-migration, mm -hmm. right? So it's not uh, as big. Um, being And being the mayor of Louisiana is different, of, of New Orleans is different than being like the governor of Louisiana or something, right? Where you, I mean, you really are a regional power, not a national power. The second thing is um, what you'll see in Louisiana is as with all of these red states that have a significant minority population, you still have to get at least 30% of the white vote, okay? So turning out African Americans is important, but you know, Barack Obama's, do you wanna guess what percentage of the white vote he got in Louisiana? I can't, I probably know. You don't even want it. It's, yeah, no. it was like, it was like yeah. close to 12%. Yeah. Okay. So the last poll that I saw, and again, there's so many polls out there, whatever, but. You know, Landrieu's numbers in a three-way race, because this is a three-way, just think of it as a primary. As a primary. She was at like 17 or 18 percent of the white vote. That, that's what's hard, is it's not just getting African Americans out to vote, and that's why this unmarried women thing becomes important too, right? It's white voters turning out, and then African American and white unmarried women t turning out to vote. And that's where the message becomes important. In fact, I, I need to write this line down, or commit it to memory, because um, it is, it's such a good way, of course I didn't bring it here, but to think about turnout. Um, um, one of your colleagues, um, Kristen's colleagues in the, on the Republican polling side says to me, he said, it's hard to win on turnout when you lose on message, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and that's the most important thing to think about right now, which is the message right now to those women would be, economy, jobs, and how bad Republicans are on both of those things, right? Minimum <coughs> wage, pay equity, child care, education, and that's what you see Democrats talking about in, in all of these states. The problem is the front pages aren't talking about those things, right? They're talking about ISIS and uh, other crises around the world. And these women also don't necessarily feel like things have gotten better, right? So it's not like you as a Democratic pres president or Democratic member of the Senate can say, isn't it awesome that we're in Congress <coughs> that we could give you this and this and this? None of those things passed. There isn't a minimum wage. There is an increase in the minimum wage. There isn't pay equity. There isn't all these things that the president said he was going to do in 2012. And more important, when you look at where single women are in terms of their own economic situation, um, and minorities, they're feeling even more pessimistic than they were in 2012. And I, I need to look at the latest one, but CNBC has done this great series on economic views of Americans since right before the downturn. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, there's been this pessimism that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, but in 2012, mm -hmm. there was something of a spike in optimism, or maybe we'll call it a drop in pessimism, especially among minority voters. Since then, and it has just skyrocketed, and in part, I mean, we, we all do this, right? We sort of justify how we're feeling to, to say, well, I think things, you know, we're going to elect Barack Obama and that's going to make things better. Now you elected him, you still don't feel great. So the motivating thing, there has to be something really motivating people. And Democrats are hoping it is still what's going to motivate is how bad Republicans are. Um, the fact that Republicans haven't done anything stupid since the government shutdown doesn't help that Democratic message, right? I mean, it would be helpful if they came out and did more really boneheaded things. But Boehner's kind of kept them from doing that. Who made that quote? Is a Republican pollster. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if you're looking at this idea that, you know, there could be this wave, yeah. it, it might not happen, but it, it might. You know, there are some of these weird little races like Oregon, right. Webby, you've got Minnesota, I know. where you've got any chance, if you, if you were in Vegas right now, mm -hmm. if you were going to put down 10 bucks on one of these like really long odds races, which one would it be? Um, 
Hmm. I was most surprised to see that there still seems to be some concern about Michigan, which to me I thought was a race that was kind of, I wouldn't have put into the category one. I don't think she's just that strong of a candidate too. It's Michigan. Um, so that one surprised, would surprise me. You know what I mean? If I said, all right, fine, this, because the odds makers would put, you know, whatever, 10 to 1 on that one. Um, the, uh, in more, it, it's more likely that what's going to happen is one of these seats that we think is safe is really not. Like, there's a sense right now that North Carolina, Hagen has turned the corner and she's, what, not, Again, none of these do I say they're definitely going to happen, but she's most likely to win, right? But I, I also wouldn't be surprised that this thing is a one or two point race that tilts the other way. You know, that would be one of those where people would say on election night, wow, I thought the Higgin had, had turned it, and I guess not. Um, on the other hand, you know, there are those races that you go, well, are Democrats going to be able to have a race where they go, uh-huh, see, I told you. I told you we could win in Arkansas, or I told you we could win. Um, you know, Alaska is probably the best case scenario, um, just in the kind of race that Begich has run, and again, how quirky Alaska is. But, um, you know, Kansas is really the only place now where you can say there's just nobody can figure that out. Um, so we're all just going to watch that. If, 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 if you were describing a big night for the Democrats, it would be keeping the Senate, oh. period. If yeah. you were describing a big night for the Republicans, what would the number be? It would be like eight, you know, that they pick up eight seats. So it would mean that they would get those red states plus a couple purple, blue states. So if that should happen, then that would give momentum to the Republicans. Well, then they would say, you know, again, but this puts Republicans back in that same place where it is almost like... They can't win even when they win, which is, okay, fine. You Okay, fine. So now you have eight seats. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do? How are you going to make it different? Pat? I'll try to make my question long enough so you can. Mm. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We invite them to eat, but we don't expect them to. So. <laughs> I have no shame. It's a, it's a bait and switch <laughs> situation. <laughs> I want to ask you about uh, who's being polled. Mm -hmm. um, is this changing at all? How far has it moved beyond calling people on their landlines? Right. I can call for a candidate, frequent voters. Uh, I get mostly answering machines yeah. for people over the age, I'd say, of Yes. Are, yes. Are people being called at all on cell phones or yes. on, their, on the web? Yes. So we actually have a pollster in here, but I will, I will attempt to answer it, and then you can weigh in with the real news, which is, you are correct that landlines alone do not adequately capture. So there seems to be this rule of thumb that it's about 30% should be cell phones and then the other landlines. There are more and more people doing online. I mean, AP now, their polling is an online panel. Um, and the bottom line is this, there is no one way to poll anymore. You know, in the olden days it was literally like knocking on people's doors and getting them to tell you. Then the telephone, when it became ubiquitous, that was the easiest way. Uh, now it really is a combination of phone, cell phone, and online, and, and then a little bit of, um, a, a little bit of magic in there <laughs> as well. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it, there is art to it as well as science. You're also making assumptions the whole time mm -hmm. about the composition of the electorate, which is why you can have, I mean, if you just followed, you can, you can tell the mood of Washington based on whichever poll was released the day before, okay? So a whole bunch of polls were released a couple weeks ago that showed Democrats either slightly ahead or at least holding on in some of these states. And then it was like, oh my God, Democrats are going to hold on. This is going to be. And then over the weekend, Des Moines Register, very well respected poll, releases a poll that shows the uh, Republican up six points. And Democrats have a poll that shows it's tied. Right? Now, 
how, how do you get how do you get these two disparate numbers? And some of it is based on when you polled, right, and who was answering, and all those things. But some of it too is the assumptions that you're making about the kind of people that are going to show up. Um, and this was what the Romney campaign ran into in 2012, and quite frankly, every Republican uh, pollster in 2012 was that the belief that the 2012 electorate could not possibly be similar to 2008, that that was a once in a lifetime, you're never going to get all those people to turn out again. And the Obama campaign was convinced they could do that, right? So that's how you, if you're making an assumption about it, the electorate, then that's also going to impact your poll. So I don't need to get 300 people under the age of 30 on the phone, I get a certain number of people under the age of 30, and then based on what I know about how they vote. And what percentage will respond? It's now down to like five or six percent. So, right? Isn't it five percent? Yeah, it's it's very bad. And even Pew did this thing where they tried to harass people as much as yeah. possible and offer them money and do everything they could to get them to take a poll, and it was only like 18 percent responded. Yeah. But the good news was the 18 percent weren't very different from the 5% that they did in the parallel calling people on their landlines poll. So the response rates are terrible, but somehow it still works. Somehow it works. <laughs> we'll get all of you in, but I want to sell a scene that you're next. I was just wondering whether um, Obamacare is in any way, in any place, a positive thing. And I'm thinking of your, of the unmarried women, you know, who were people who benefited. I mean, is, is, is it positive anywhere? And is anybody using it as a campaign? Um, as a campaign positive. Yeah. Right. So um, the short answer is no. <laughs> um, that's not because mm -hmm. there aren't people who, having, who are having positive experiences with it. It's that um, we now are to the point where your opinions of Obamacare are directly intertwined with your feelings about the president. So there, it's really not a policy <laughs> anymore. It's about, do you like Obama? Do you like Obamacare? You don't like Obama? You don't like Obamacare, regardless of how it's uh, impacting you. Um, and so that's why the issue has been the number one issue by Republicans in this election because, again, they're going in states where only 30 percent of the people in those states like the president. Right? So it's an easy – it's basically just a proxy for do you like Obama? Fine. You know. Um, the other problem, as we know, with something like this is um, – with the Obamacare issue in general is before any of this passed, we knew the following things. One, you know, more than 80, something like 83, 84 percent of Americans had some form of health care insurance, whether it was, you know, employer-based, individual market, or Medicare, Medicaid, right? So just from a Again, pure politics piece, not about policy or what's right or what's wrong or any of that, but you're talking about X number of millions of people who already have health care and then this many people who are getting it, right? And so the issue, I think, in terms of how it's viewed is less about how these people feel about it and more about how these people feel about it. And if these people feel threatened by what that's doing, my rates went up, my the doctor uh, that I wanted to see is no longer on my plan. My company dropped me. Um, that is going to have a bigger impact than on the three million or seven million or eight million who now do have health care. Um, we are a very, you know, as a society, I think we all are, we are good people. We want the best for everyone. But ultimately, it really comes down to what does it mean for me, right? Like I'm happy to help people as long as it doesn't impact me. Yes. You. Me? You. You. Oh, me. Hi. Uh, there's been discussion among uh, my colleagues about the effect of uh, Citizens United, uh -huh. which I have stated um, was, I think, one of the most damaging um, events, uh, acts that have uh, the Supreme Court has come down with, and how it is, we're now in the process of buying an election. And um, would you speak to that? Is that, that the uh, propaganda from uh, <laughs> from my side? Or uh, because the response has been very uh, strong pushback, 
that that is not the case. Citizens United has not um, been that detrimental, and actually, it was triangle. But but it does. But but just when you talk to citizens, because I would like to be more informed. You'd like to be right. Dred Scott was a little bit worse. <laughs> <laughs> what? Because because of anyway. yeah no because listen you know as I said. If you just look at the last couple of elections and you say all the money that went into those super PACs in 2012 to defeat either, and 2010, to defeat Democrats and to defeat the president, didn't really work out that well, right? Which is part of the reason why the super PACs are having a hard time raising money this cycle. In fact, when you look at, you know, the fact that Karl Rove went to the Wall Street Journal editorial page to, like, oh, woe is me, we don't have enough money, help, help, help. We're going to lose because Democrats are outraising us, um, is in part a reaction to the fact that there were a lot of donors who said, hey, I gave a lot of money to you guys. You said we were going to win, and we got our clocks cleaned. We didn't win any of those Senate races. Well, I'm not going to give you any more money, right? So that there is something of a, uh, you know, they, they, they are still have to be responsible to their donors. The other piece is, to be clear, one group that's spending a great deal of money is the Harry Pack, Harry Reid Super PAC. Okay, that, that is. I, I, I mean, yeah. I'm not a okay, you're agnostic about, about it. I'm yeah, about, about just in general. Of individuals who now are who are contributing and the power of the Super okay. PAC. Okay, agreed. And, so and here's I've where I think it, it. it the, the the best argument that I've heard, and again, this is more at the presidential level than at the congressional level, is the degree to which individuals are now single individuals are now part of the primary process, right? Your job as a Republican candidate, you want to raise as much money as you can, but you also know you have to have, maybe you're not supposed to know about it, a super PAC that's doing this for you, right? So you will go and go to some of these billionaires who have their own super PACs, and you're making a pitch to them. Right? They're getting as much of a they're getting access to a presidential candidate that they would always have had because they would be big donors. But they're having an influence that is outweighed because they can single-handedly save a candidate in a certain state, right? Now, what I can't tell you is that it's that much more pernicious than how life was before any of these campaign finance laws, right? I mean, I don't know. I just go back and I look at LBJ coming back from Texas with literally, I mean, the stories of him coming back, talking to his oil and gas buddies with bags <laughs> of cash that he put in the overhead compartment and then brought to the Senate floor to hand out. That was, I, that was I, bad, I, right? I'm not, I'm not supporting any of that. That's I, right. My, my, the concept is that the, that the, 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 the Koch brothers and the Democrat so, and the, on the Democrat side and the, the Sheldon, what, Adelson. Adelson, that you can that you can actually buy election. You can pick your you can choose your candidate who's going to be there and run, and it cuts out so much more that again both guys do it. Yeah, no, I, I mean I think it will be in some cases. I think it has changed the, the dynamic of the game. It has because what it's allowed, and we will see it. I think even more so in this next presidential is the candidates who at one point would have been, so we have to decide if this is good or bad, all right? So it used to be that a candidate who, you, let's say you didn't win the Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, you weren't on that trifecta, you were going to be gone pretty quickly. And the race, the primary race was over pretty quickly. You couldn't raise any money. Now there's a possibility that every single one of these candidates has a super PAC, right? And that even if their own money dries up, their donors dry up, there's somebody writing checks for them. Now, that's either a really bad thing because the the system was designed to call out people and then, or it means that it's a good thing that not just the wealthy, the one candidate who has the most money, personal money, is able to succeed. But that's how it is. Okay, one last question. Yeah. I should just make a point because I've been having this debate with Valerie. My, my argument is that the Citizens United case per se, just that decision most of what you're talking about could be done before Citizens United. It could. The, the Citizens United was just corporate. corporate. Well, all it did was it allowed, what it did do was. It's not right. It's not right. It, what it did do, look, 
the, the folks like George Soros were basically running a super PAC in 2004, yeah. okay? It wasn't, called, it wasn't Citizens United, it wasn't called a super PAC, but that's what he did. What this allowed people to do is to be able to not fear getting named, named and getting a lawsuit or getting all those other things, right? The IRS coming and hauling you in. I mean, there was a real concern about doing that. At the same time, What's different is that these are not corporations that are doing this. This is not Coca-Cola that has one and Procter & Gamble that has it. They don't want to get into this at all. It's that it's, yeah. that, it's, that it's individuals with their own specific agenda, right? So it's Sheldon Adelson, who's worth a gajillion dollars. He cares about Israel and he cares about gambling, okay? That is his agenda. It's not the, and of course he's a Republican. So yes, he would like a Republican agenda. But that's what's different. It's not that you have the, uh, and the Koch brothers have their own agenda. And uh, Paul Singer is another hedge fund guy in New York, has his own agenda, right? Sometimes they align, sometimes they don't. And that's what's fascinating when you see like Rand Paul, right? There's gonna be a whole bunch of Republican super PACs that are aimed at just taking him down. And then there's gonna be a whole group of super PACs that are gonna try to boost him up. and. That, I think, is, again, it could have happened before then, but I think what it gave donors was a sense of security that they were not going to be named. Okay, final, final thing. Prediction. The Senate. <laughs> oh, I, the, I day think after, the day after. The day after, the, what's the number? Yes. I just have been stuck on the number seven for a while, so I'll just mm -hmm. keep that number. So it would be 52 seats for Republicans. 52 seats, and does yeah. that represent, I mean, it, that leaves Republicans in the same fix that you were describing? Yeah. They're in the fix, w unless they get 60, which they won't. Mm -hmm. There's, there's nothing they can do. Amy, thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, thank you, Love guys.